Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Today, former Wisconsin Congressman and Washington, D.C. lobbyist Scott Klug discusses his storytelling podcast, Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans. He details how the present-day state of political polarization has left a lot of voters floating around on icebergs. Also, the team is joined by Tom George, a past state senator and Historical Society of Michigan board member. In honor of President's Day, he describes President Abraham Lincoln's only trip to Michigan in 1856, speaking to more than 20,000 attendees at a Republican rally ahead of the American Civil War. Senior Chief Deputy Director Jonathan Smith of Michigan's Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity explains the department's developing responsibility to assist and retrain the state's energy workforce as energy inventories become carbon-free. Now, here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, and for the second segment, MERS editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much, Jeff Smith, for leading off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, our President's Day edition. Jeff will be filling in for Mark Bayshore this month at getting our episodes going and editing everything. Oh, so disclaimer to our listeners, these segments were recorded on Friday, February 16th. Now, let's begin. Joining us for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, well, we are actually joined by someone from one of Michigan's fellow Great Lakes states, Wisconsin, and that is former U.S. Rep. Scott Klug, who was a Republican congressional member from Madison, Wisconsin from 1991 through 1998. Uh, now, currently, Scott is both a public affairs director for a large-sized law firm co-chairing a federal public affairs practice and is additionally the host of his own political podcast, Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans. The show ultimately zooms in on one particular number. The 44% of Americans identify as centrist, representing what the show's website would describe as 71 million uh, bewildered, frustrated voters. Hi, Scott. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for the invitation. No, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, just to kick off our conversation, uh, why did you create your podcast and what exactly is it? Sure. So this all started during the first Kevin McCarthy fiasco when Kevin first got sworn in or couldn't get sworn in. And I had people stop me in the cereal aisle of grocery stores, in the line at a movie theater, at a coffee shop, basically saying, what's going on? They usually didn't say it that politely. It usually was followed by expletives, but sort of what's going on? I don't understand this. The Republicans are running around the country trying to take middle school books off the shelves. And the Democrats are trying to take the gas stove out of my kitchen. I meant, who signed up for these people? And if you look at the polling numbers, I meant 60% of the public doesn't want a rematch of Biden and Trump. If they turn on the TV or turn on the radio or open their newspapers, what they find is every story essentially focuses on the political extremes. And that's not where most Americans are these days. They're not that way in Wisconsin. They're not that way in Michigan. They're not that way lots of places. So we decided nobody really focuses on how they feel and how they're interacting with the political system and frankly, how we get out of the mess we're in right now. So the episodes are actually storytelling. They're not an interview. So we actually take one subject and riff on it. So we've done them on civility and politics, on independent voters, on what's happened with the media, uh, we did one on realignment in politics. You know that in Michigan, how things can change just on the state level. It happens on the national level. So 
It's been a lot of fun, and it's it's uh, we've gotten great reception on on uh, other shows like yours, and we've also got a lot of feedback from the public who emails us in, and we see it in our subscription. So I want to know a little bit more about you. So you are in Congress, you are a Republican caucus member, and then after after you left office, you stayed around in the political ecosystem. Uh, tell me a little bit about your life while in Congress in comparison to your life post-Congress. Sure. Well, so I tell everybody I have the entire axis of evil covered, right? So I spent 12 years as a television reporter, eight years in Congress, and now boy, almost 20 years as a lobbyist. So uh, if uh, you don't like any of those groups, I'm in trouble even to begin with. So I was in Congress. I uh, actually grew up in Wisconsin, but I worked in television for years around the country and moved back in a familiar story when we had kids and we wanted to be uh, their grandparents. Um, and like a lot of people, I think folks get riled up about an issue or two. And I was very much a, a creature of my time. It was the beginning of um, sort of what became the contract with America that supported term limits, a balanced budget, a lot of government reforms. Uh, and I served for eight years and I kept to my word as a term limit person and and, uh, and walked away at that point. And then I've stayed active in politics. I still consider myself a Republican, but I'm from the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. And so uh, in some ways, I'm out of sync with the majority of Republicans these days. But I think most Democrats are out of sync with who would pass us for Democrats in Washington these days. So a lot of us are out there floating around in icebergs. When you think about this longtime career that you've had in the political ecosystem, and, and I like to ask a lot about the currency of political polarization. Uh, at what point do you vividly remember seeing political polarization and feeling genuinely and deeply uncomfortable? Well, I think it's been a phenomenon of probably the last six years, but it's churned around. I and mean, if you look, um, some of the elements, I think, of the Republican Party today actually grew out of the Tea Party movement, which would have been during President Obama's term in opposition to the Obama health care plan. And so you, I think you've seen over that time a, a growth of populists in the country, and the populists arguably moved from the Democratic Party more to the Republican Party, I think in part because... A lot of traditional Democrats felt disenfranchised, but by the move of the Democrats' elite on the coast, right? And so if you talk to working class Democrats or working class workers, period, in Wisconsin or Michigan, a lot of them are traditional Democrats. They feel very disengaged for with Hollywood, with the, you know, the elites at the universities. And so it's interesting with realignment because oftentimes you see politics move around in states or you see it move around nationally. So I'll just give you a quick example. Today, former President George H. Bush, who grew up and whose family had a house on the ocean in Maine for 100 years, could not get elected in his own congressional district. And Bill Clinton, Hope, Arkansas, would uh, lose probably to Donald Trump by about 71 to 29 percent. That's how those districts have changed. And so politics always continually shift around the country. They shift geographically. But they also shift ideologically, right? So I belong to the Republican Party, and somebody joins my coalition that I don't like, and then I leave and go to another party. And I think the classic shift we see right now demographically is going on with Hispanic voters, where you see a lot of Hispanic voters, in many cases, work blue-collar jobs, and they got clobbered during the Biden shutdown uh, over COVID. And so that sort of made them frustrated with the White House. 
And then they tend to be much more conservative culturally on religious issues and on things like abortion. So the Hispanics are now shifting further right. And you're in the heart of it where we're talking right now in suburban Detroit, where the suburbs, which at one time were predominantly red, have now shifted and become purple. And so I think one of the things we ha all have to understand in American politics is nothing's ever steady, nothing ever stays the same. And this populist moment is sort of swelling at the moment. The question is whether it sticks around and has lasting power. I, I will personally say that one of my favorite things about living in Michigan and also being a journalist in Michigan is being a part of a purple state political ecosystem. And you kind of saw after 2022, you know, when the governor won re-election, when Democrats won the state legislature, uh, there was a lot of national publications making the indication of, oh, is Michigan a blue state now? And I'm like, as a Michigan political reporter, I would never feel comfortable saying that our state was red or blue. I I, I really enjoy our purple nature and I, and I believe in our purple nature. Uh, what, what are some of your thoughts on our state? Well, I'll talk to Michigan in a second, but let me tell you my personal story. So I grew up in Milwaukee. My mom was an Irish Catholic Democrat and the daughter of a union railroad worker. My dad was a German Lutheran Republican Chamber of Commerce uh, Republican. So needless to say, we didn't talk much about the Immaculate Conception or talk much about politics at my dinner table. But my parents were classic Midwestern ticket splitters. Uh, my dad usually voted Republican, but he was a huge fan of a longtime Wisconsin Democratic Senator, Bill Proxmire. My mom loved Ronald Reagan. And if you look in 2022, again, hang for a second, we'll get to Michigan, ticket splitting erupted all over the country when political scientists thought it was this sort of quirky little thing that happened in America for a while and disappeared. There was ticket splitting in New Hampshire, Republican governor, Democratic senator. You go up the road just a little bit, and if I say, Vermont and you think politics, you think, oh, Bernie Sanders, it's really left, except the most popular politician in Vermont is a four-term Republican governor who got elected with, listen to this, 74% of the vote. Ticket splitting in Georgia, Republican governor, Democratic senator. In Wisconsin, Democratic governor, Republican senator. Same thing in Kansas, same thing in Nevada, same thing in Arizona. And so ticket splitting happens a lot in the country. And if you look at the elections coming up, it'll be the classic battleground states around the country. And Michigan's going to be in the heart of it. And you're in Macomb County, right? The, the home of the Reagan Democrat. And Michigan tilted left last time out. But I don't think there's really any guarantee. I just talked to three voters in Erie, Pennsylvania. And they sort of laughed because Erie's the consummate bellwether area there. It's, uh, it's, I made a mistake of asking one of the guys I interviewed if he was a Philadelphia Eagles fan or a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and he took great umbrage because Erie County is so far west, it's actually 25 miles from Cleveland, so everybody's a Browns fan in Erie, Pennsylvania. But nobody in Pennsylvania understands Erie County. In fact, the one woman I talked to said everybody thinks we're part of Canada. We're so different than the rest. And so you see these little battleground areas and they shift around constantly. And who knows what's going to be the defining issue, you know, 10 months from now, 11 months from now. It'll, it'll, it'll change and shift around. And I think if you look again, you know, if you just saw the DNC made some gigantic ad buy and I'm thinking, here comes the carpet bombing, right? Michigan will get it. Wisconsin will get it. Iowa will get it. Ohio will get it. North Carolina, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona. It's the same 13 or 14 states that tends to define our national elections. And it's that same 13 or 14 states where a very thin slice 
of purple voters will go back and forth depending upon how the election breaks. I think of all those battleground states, they've all stayed pretty constant. Sometimes they move a little bit one way or the other. And I think Michigan right now, people would paint as a pale blue. But, you know, you look now and Ohio is deeply red, which wasn't. Iowa, which is a battleground state, is now very red. So things just keep changing constantly. But as you as a reporter, you're going to be in the heart of it, right? And Macomb County and probably six or seven other counties in Michigan will decide where Michigan goes. And that, not unlikely, will decide which way the presidential looks. I'm so curious. How the heck do you have time for all of this? <laughs> because you're a you're a lawyer. You uh, <laughs> you no, don't insult me. I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. I just work with a lot of lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it seems like you're having these very um you know these very politically intimate conversations with people from all throughout the country. How do you make time for that? Well, you know, it's um I'm at the heart still a journalist in a lot of ways. I think it's how I approach things. And I've always been very curious. And th- this has been fun for me to do. And it sort of gets tucked in my to my other business hours. But fortunately, you cover the legislature. Sometimes my life in Washington is crazy. Sometimes it's quiet. And in a, in a presidential election year, you know, mostly what happens in Washington, D.C. at this point is posturing, right? Not a lot of substantial stuff gets done. So it's fairly quiet. You know, here, here's another one that I think is really interesting and what frustrates people. So if you look at the immigration bill that just fell apart in Washington this week, George W. Bush said when he left office, his greatest regret was the fact that they couldn't get an immigration deal done. That was 15 years ago. And this time what happens is that the Republicans in the House kill the immigration bill because they want it as a political issue in the fall. If you look at what happened when George Bush was in office, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic majority leader, killed the immigration bill because they wanted it as an election issue in the fall. And I think that's what really frustrates average voters. If the two of us wandered down to a Tim Hortons and found three other people at a table and ordered a cup of coffee, we could probably figure out the immigration deal on a napkin. It's not that complicated, right? You want a better, more secure border. You want some kind of pathway for the kids who came here as dreamers. And you have to figure out some way for folks who've been here illegally, who've worked hard, pay taxes. The guys across the street from me fixing the roof a week ago, the mariachi music was blaring while they were up on the roof fixing things. And I was talking to the guys and they all came from uh, Mexico at one point. I would really like to poke your mind on issues. Why do you think that immigration is such a big issue for Republican primary voters, uh, even even in Michigan or you're from Wisconsin, us Great Lakes states? Uh, why would voters in our region care so much about immigration when, yeah, we're kind of a border state in Michigan, but it's of Canada? Well, I think pe- people are concerned for two reasons. I think some folks see it as a threat to their jobs. And I think in some cases, a lot of blue collar workers who work at factories worry about low cost laborers coming in and replacing them. Okay, here's a joke, right? Wisconsin's the dairy state, obviously, you know, where, where we really need and oftentimes use um, documented and probably undocumented aliens is in the dairy industry because those folks will work hard. And they'll actually milk the cows at five o'clock in the morning and they have to be milked five times a day. Um, So I think one is a threat to jobs. You saw that even with NAFTA, the sense that the American factories would all move south of New Mexico. And clearly that happened in some places, but not a lot. The second thing, I think that people really think that we're a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation of laws. Right. And so there's a lot of folks trying to get to the U.S. from Kenya, from Haiti 
from Bolivia, from all kinds of places around the country that face economic challenges. But they have to go through a system where they apply for a lottery and then get a visa to come to the United States. And I think people don't think that's fair. And frankly, in the last uh, during the Biden administration, which has just chosen not to enforce some of the rules, you know, the video is just overwhelming and shocking. And, and, and I actually think it was smart politics in a big sense for Governor Abbott to make this point with sanctuary cities across the country and say, OK, you're going to talk so smart about what we should be doing in Texas. How about if we send a thousand immigrants, uh, illegal uh, immigrants to New York and to California and to Chicago and sort of give you an indication of how big this problem is. So I think it's been a big issue in the news. And I think most people, while they're very empathetic and sympathetic to the immigrants and, and why they're coming here, I think they want it to be in orderly and a lawful fashion. Well, I think one question that I do kind of want to ask about the immigration topic. I mean, when you look at the present day rhetoric around the um, immigration issue, uh, what is one thing that you really like? And what is one thing you really don't like? Well, you know, actually, let me talk about the language in the first place, because I think one of the things that's interesting to watch in this debate is the language that's used for the undocuments come, that come across. A lot of the softer language, usually more on the left, talks about asylum seekers and humanitarian. And the harder stuff will always accentuate illegal immigrants. And it's all it's always around law legal issues and law issues it's just interesting to me that it's it's been a hot issue now in u.s politics for the better part of two decades and so while everybody talks about it nobody in washington ever really does anything to fix it and i think those are the kind of issues that drive americans crazy getting back to my podcast lost lostmiddle.com it's what people get frustrated by because they don't want and they won't ever use the word in terms of the way things get done, compromise. Compromise means that I gave up something to you. What they want is the phrase collaboration, where they want to get things done in an orderly fashion. So that language matters a lot in politics and, and the way it's used these days. And probably no issue illustrates it more than the border issue these days. I also want to talk about the topic of abortion. I think you see a lot of Democrats wanting that to have a mobilizing impact this coming up election. Uh, they want to talk about, you know, the risk, the threat of a federal abortion ban if Democrats are not elected. I mean, that's something that they're investing a lot of money and brain power into. Uh, do you think the conversation about a federal hypothetical abortion ban is that a serious possibility or is that a political boogeyman? I think it's a political boogeyman. I think the decision by the Supreme Court to send it back to the states really makes it a state by state battle for the most part. And, and the, the answer is it's rare that one political party is going to be have enough domination to actually force that through one way or the other in, in Washington. I think this has just become a hot political issue. And it changes, again, the suburbs. That's where the fight really is. If you look at my home state of Wisconsin, the key battleground state was always the sort of affluent collar suburbs around Milwaukee. And those have gone from being predominantly red, folks like Tommy Thompson and Scott Walker were governors, to become deeply purple. And what there's two things driving that. One is abortion as an issue. And the second is uh, sort of Trump's language towards women causes problems all across the country. You saw that with independent voters in New Hampshire, for example, even where Trump beat Nikki Haley. There's a big flashing warning sign about the suburbs, I think, that are clearly in play. 
in my experience when I was in office, and I, and I was a pro-choice Republican, I don't want the government involved in my life or my faith or my bedroom or any place else. It's like, stay away. The smaller, the better, the least intrusive. The government which governs least governs best from my perspective. But even back then, when I talked to folks, you get people on the, the extremes, right? Pro-life was really hardcore here, and the NARAL pro-choice people were over there. But they were both sort of fanatical about it. Most people just didn't want to talk about it and think about it in a lot of ways. And I think that's still where more Americans are. But I think there's a group now that the decision on Rojos's weight is their primary reason to vote. But I don't think it's the only reason people vote. It's over all kinds of issues, usually, as you know, which comes down to how people perceive the economy is doing for their household. And I even just wonder, because obviously in Michigan, we had the success of Proposal 3 in 2022, enshrining abortion access as a state constitutional right. Uh, And I wonder, and I've had people ask, you know, are voters going to be thinking about abortion in November 2024 when they vote on some of these federal candidates? I'm a bit hesitant to say, well, I don't know. I'm a reporter, so I'm not going to gamble on any hypotheticals. But I mean, what do you think? I mean, do you think that voters are actually going to be thinking about abortion in November 2024. Yes, but I think it's part of a cafeteria menu, right? For for a very small group on one side or the other, it will be the issue. But people think about all kinds of issues when they go to the polls. They'll think about their kids' education. But as you know, education's got nothing to do with the federal government. Education has to do with the local school board. They'll think about gas taxes and and, uh, filling up the pump. And are they high or are they low? Do they want to get electric cars? And so they want to, you know, they think uh, the gas prices are crazy. It's polluting the environment. Or people say, I can barely afford my old beater. Why am I, how am I going to buy a $45,000 electric car? I I don't think single interest voters um, necessarily determine elections. I think it's one of the ingredients that's in the stew. And it's a stew that particularly matters in purple suburbs more than anything else. So uh, that's sort of my perception on this. But you know, if you listen to our podcast, again, uh, lostmiddle.com, one of the trends people don't realize that's going on all around the country is the surge of independent voters. So if you look at Nevada, there are more registered independent voters now than there are Republicans or Democrats. Voters under the age of 30 won't affiliate with either political party. The largest single registration in New Hampshire are unaffiliated, which is basically their word for independence. And I think that's saying a lot about where the politics in the country are heading. And that's why we think the lost political middle is very frustrated over this. They can't understand why things can't get done. And they're so frustrated with the level of animosity. You know, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this can probably tell you a story about the fight at the Thanksgiving table where people walked out of the room or have lost buddies they used to play golf with or they can't play in the tennis group they used to play with. And the politics have gotten so ugly And I think people are just frustrated that would like to see the temperature lowered and like to see candidates who actually run for office trying to get something done rather than just throwing pies at each other. Well, as you go on this journey to advocate for the centrist voter, I mean, have you personally lost any friends? Uh, No, it's funny. I really don't talk much about politics, which is interesting in that. Um, I, I never felt like I had to convince you that I was right. It's just not in my personality. I'd rather argue about sports. Congratulations on the surge of the Lions. The Packers are coming right behind you the next season. Much more passionate about that. And my politics matter to me 
Um, but I tend to, to not engage. A lot of times, because of my background, people will ask questions, and I still get opportunities to talk at schools or, you know, to talk to annual meetings for people or to talk to clients when we're working the hills in, in Washington and explain how the system works. But in terms of me trying to actively engage, it's my former journalism instinct. I'd rather turn around and ask them questions than to pontificate. Well, I, I know that we're a little over time. Could I ask you one just overtime question? Absolutely. I guess this is something that I was I was asked when I was talking about our uh, the governor's proposed executive budget for the state uh, on radio. And I and I was asked because right now in Michigan, in the budget making room in our state legislature, there is kind of this noted state of economic stability. But then when you look at individual households, you know, individual kitchen tables, I mean, there's a lot of economic frustrations, a lot of financial grievances about the everyday cost of living. I think my question is, is like, at what point do we actually see those two worlds merge together? Uh, one where you have people in government looking at spending proposals, and then you have the everyday constituent who is just enraged by the current state of their finances. Yeah, well, and they're interrelated, right? I mean, if you look at the upcoming federal budget, we'll spend more on interest on the debt than we'll actually pay on defense right now. And if you look between Social Security, Medicare, defense, and interest on the debt, there's really very little money in Washington to spend on any other programs. So nationally, we're facing a big crisis on the debt. The last time the budget was uh, actually balanced in Washington was when Bill Clinton was president. And it just keeps getting worse with both Republicans and Democrats bearing the responsibility. And I think the one thing that still sticks with people is sticker shop over individual items in grocery stores, how much they've gone up. I like to cook dinner uh, and a couple of weeks ago went and bought a small beef roast and then suddenly went, whoa, because I, I usually don't pay attention to how much it was. And for a lot of people who uh, live paycheck to paycheck, that inflation is still taking a bite out of them. It's harder to buy houses if you're a young person. The interest rates have come down, but they've not come down to what it is. I've got three boys, two of whom uh, have houses, and they were lucky enough to lock stuff in a few years ago. But if you're trying to buy a house now at 6 7% interest rates, it's pretty tough. So I think on a micro level, I still think it's the inflation is dramatically impacting people's individual budgets. And so while the government in Michigan and elsewhere tends to feel pretty flush right now because tax dollars are up, because everything's up, it's tough on individual households. And I think that's going to still echo through the election this fall. Mm -hmm. I think there's a sense that while the numbers may be the same, I think there's a slice of the American public that thinks the economy was much better under Trump. But people will always say, you know, X, Y, and Z is on the ballot this year. And obviously, you'll see them say that the economy is on the budget this year. Is it really, though? I mean, does a politician, does a government official in the current state of political polarization have any real authentic power to control the economy? Well, not an individual official, with the exception of the president, but you can certainly do it where we're, where the party in power directs how the money is spent, and they can spend more, they can spend less. And I think the, I mean, the economy, in many ways, is a, a people's perception of the right track and the wrong track, and the wrong track numbers are very high at this point, which you, know, you and I can argue about what kind of shape the economy is in, but for people on the ground, folks going to the grocery store, 
at the end of the month trying to figure out if they've got the dollars to make it before the next check comes in. The economy is really what drives just about every decision, every election. No, well, thank you so much, Scott Klug of the Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans. Uh, do you want to add like where our listeners could find your podcast if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go to uh, lostmiddle.com and it'll take you to our website. And on it are the podcast episodes that you can listen to just on your computer. If you're a podcast fan, as you hear from everybody say, all the usual places. So we're on Apple and Spotify and all the other major systems. It's a storytelling thing. There are 14 episodes from last September till next September. We hope they give it, give it a chance and give it a listen. And I really appreciate our chat this morning. No, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate having you on and I hope you have a great day. Thanks. Joining us now for our second segment of the Merce Monday podcast is Tom George. Tom was a member of the state Senate from 2003 through 2010, representing Kalamazoo County as a Republican legislator and chairing the Senate Health Policy Committee. But nowadays, if you check out what's going on at the Heritage Museum and Cultural Center in St. Joseph, Tom bears the title of Lincoln Historian and is scheduled to speak on the day this episode is coming out, Monday, President's Day, on Abraham Lincoln's only trip to Michigan, where he spoke at a campaign rally in Kalamazoo's Bronson Park to promote John C. Fremont presidential bid in 1856 who was the country's first ever Republican nominee for president. Hey, Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on, Sam and Kyle. So what's it like to go from legislator and now as a Lincoln historian? So I'm really a history enthusiast. I'm an amateur, but I've had a long interest in state history. And of course, it links, you know, to politics and to current events. So in the legislature, I always found it helpful to try and see how past actions had brought us to where we are. So I'm an amateur, but I'm an avid amateur. I've been on the board of the Historical Society of Michigan. You know, they publish Michigan History Magazine and they have an annual conference. So those are good sources to learn about Michigan history. And I I would encourage, you know, your listeners to to study the history of our great state. It was and is peopled by interesting characters that went through interesting times, and those times shape where we are today. Now, when we talk about Lincoln's visit to Bronson Park, his only visit to Michigan, as far as we know, when you think about the dynamics at play here, why do you want to zoom in on the Bronson visit by Abraham Lincoln? Well, one of my interests when I was a legislator and still today is trying to find and demonstrate how my local community links to the larger stream of events. So, you know, every community or town or city or village experienced the Civil War or women's suffrage or the Civil Rights Movement. And we have in our communities, you know, we have a collective memory for how those events were experienced, you know, here at home. So I've, I've always had an interest in that. And when I moved to Kalamazoo, I found uh, a historical marker said, you know, Lincoln was here. And so that that picked my interest. And I began, you know, reading all I could about, about Lincoln's visit to Kalamazoo. Of course, others had studied it. Uh, there had been articles, you know, published in the 1950s in history magazines and such. So I collected all those. I found the primary sources that they referred to. Then I found more. I think, you know, what it tells us is that the people in Michigan were 
heavily invested in the events of the day. And this time when Lincoln came, it was four years before he was president, was a very dynamic time in our nation's history where things were evolving rapidly. One of those themes was the debate over slavery. And that was uh, foremost in this presidential campaign in 1856. So that's what brought Lincoln here was to be part of a campaign rally for the first Republican presidential candidate, John Fremont, as you mentioned. And But the discussion of the day was about slavery and whether it should be allowed to expand into new territories in the North. That was the question then. And this had outraged uh, Michiganders, and they had been so concerned about it that Michiganders from different political stripes, the two main political parties, Democrat and, and the Whig Party, together with members of the Abolitionist Party, the Liberty Party, they had met two years earlier and formed the Republican Party in response. So this was part of a stream of events that would captivate the nation, but several of the important steps along the way are illustrated you know, here in Michigan and here in my backyard in Kalamazoo. So as you looked into the visit, Tom, uh, tell our, give our listeners a little bit of a, um, a look into uh, why he came here and what he said when he was here. Sure. So let me give you a little overview and paint the scene for you a little bit. So it's it was August 1856. So it's four years before he's president. He hasn't debated Stephen Douglas yet. That would be in his Senate race in 1858. He didn't have a beard because he would grow that later. So he comes to Kalamazoo during, I think, what people would say was his kind of rise to power. He had served in the Illinois legislature in, in the state house. He had served one term in Congress in the 1840s. And then he had left politics and was practicing law full time. But in 1854, when this proposal to allow new states to pick whether they would be slave or free, when that passed Congress, that was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, when that passed Congress and that, that lit this fire of opposition, he in Illinois, he became re-engaged in politics. And that's when he looked at running for the Senate the first time in 1854. And that's when this new political party formed in Michigan. So then in 1856, this movement had spread to other states. There was a presidential election coming. So there had been a national convention in Philadelphia, and the delegates had chosen Fremont as the first Republican candidate. Lincoln wasn't at that convention, but the Illinois delegation put his name in for the vice presidential spot and he finished second. So he wasn't at the convention, but this is kind of why his name, you know, would have been, would have, would have come up. And of course, Michigan had delegates at the convention from this new Republican party. And one of them was from Kalamazoo. His name was Hezekiah Wells. He was a judge here and had been uh, the president of the village. You know, now we call that mayor. So he returned after the convention, he returns to Kalamazoo and he's enthused about, you know, the Fremont ticket. And so he took it on himself, you know, with some other community leaders to organize this campaign rally, which would take place in Bronson Park. And it, it was going to occur on a Wednesday, but it was going to be a big rally where he invited lots of speakers. So he would invite Lincoln and that would Lincoln would be the only out of state speaker who would come. And the other speakers included the other you know, Republican leaders of the day, like Zachariah Chandler who would later become one of our U.S. senators, Jacob M. Howard, who was also one of our Civil War senators, and the governor, Kinsley S. Bingham. 
So Hezekiah Wells invites invites you know these speakers and they make arrangements for trains to be chartered to bring people in. So their trains from you know Grand Rapids from Jackson uh, are going to bring people to this big rally and it's a huge event. Kalamazoo was a village of maybe 10,000 people then and the newspaper accounts of the day say that as many depending on which one you read as many as 20 or 30,000 people attended. Hard to imagine, but they said it was the biggest gathering to that day ever in the state. The other interesting thing about the newspaper accounts is imagine all these people, you know, converging in Kalamazoo. Of course, they're going to be hungry. And so the host had made great preparations for food arrangements and they had set out, you know, tables with food. And much of the newspaper reporting is talking about the food and the parades and the bands and the speakers are mentioned, but not really much about what they said. But they do say, you know, Lincoln was there. They mentioned the other speakers. And one of the diarists who wrote about this talks about he went there and he went to a table and it was filled with food. And he started at one end and he ate his way through. And then he went to listen to the speakers, but he couldn't hear them very well. But then he puts at the end, but Lincoln is the man for me. Now, so one thing I find also interesting now, John C. Fremont, he's from California, right? So did he travel to Michigan up from California at this point? No, no, no. So he's not at the rally. He, I should have made that clear. He's not there. He's not there. These are people speaking on his behalf. He's who knows where he is. He's not there. These are, you know, surrogates talking about the need to, to check the spread of slavery, get on the Fremont team, et cetera. Now, one interesting thing is for years, it was the details of, you know, what Lincoln said, et cetera, were not known. You know, it was known he was here, but an amateur researcher in the 1930s who was looking for newspaper accounts of the rally, you know, knowing its date, he's looking for newspaper accounts. He was in the Detroit Public Library. His name was Tom Starr, and he was looking for the August 1856 volume of the Detroit Advertiser. So this had been an early uh, Republican paper of the day, and it, it's you know gone out of business. And the the bound volumes were on the shelf in 1856 was missing, and he poked around, and it had fallen behind the others. So he found it. He opened it up, and he found the edition right after August 27th, and there, word for word, was the text of Lincoln's speech. That paper had sent a reporter who, using the shorthand of the day called phonography, had taken notes and then they had reprinted Lincoln's speech. And there were two, there are only two extant copies of that paper, but that's how we have the text of Lincoln's speech. And Tom Starr published it then uh, in, the in the early 1940s. So how, long do you, read, how long do you think that speech was just by by reading it and having looked at it and, and having done public speaking yourself? How long do you think he was up there? Yeah, it's a it's probably half an hour ish. Yeah, wow. it's about a half an hour. And, and, he and, was the, at, and the point was, what was his point that he was trying to make? Slavery? Vote for Fremont. He's your man. He's against the spread of slavery. And you Democrats talk about freedom and stuff. But come on, if you're if that's what really what you, you mean, you need to you should vote for Fremont. He also talks about, there's a couple interesting things. Even then in 1856, apparently there were those in the South saying if Fremont won, they would secede. So he addresses that in his speech. So this is four years before you know he's running. And he says something like, 
Those those in the South who are saying, you know, they're going to secede if Fremont wins. Why are they saying that? They want to do that. You know, we're not making them secede. They want this to happen. They want to leave. So it's interesting that he touches on these two themes, slavery and secession. And these would be the two, you know, themes then during his presidency. And, and of course, uh, you know, he would he would in a way resolve both. You know, he would win the Civil War to end secession. And then, you know, he would sign the Emancipation Proclamation. So who knew all this was coming in 1856? But there are little hints of it in his Kalamazoo speech. Any sense on how the public reacted to it? Not really. The papers were very partisan. Imagine that. And I think it's the free press said something like the, the, the speakers were all buffoons, you know, and it was all a waste of time. And of course, the Republican papers said, oh, the speakers were great. And so was the food and the bands. And and oh, it was wonderful. And there were so many people there. So the, the accounts have the perspective of of the, you know, of the political lens. But I think, you know, you can assume Lincoln was a little more moderate. He was not an abolitionist. And so Zachariah Chandler, for example, and some of the other Republican speakers probably talked a little bit more about the evil of slavery, where Lincoln talked about defending the Constitution, uh, but checking the spread of slavery. So there were some subtle differences, you know, approaches that, again, you know, showed that Lincoln was a little more moderate then. And it also, I think, shows how people can change, you know, over time. His position was evolving. So this speech comes two years before his House Divided speech, you know, when he's going to run against Stephen Douglas, where he's more emphatic about, you know, slavery isn't going to be able to stand. So he hasn't quite got, gotten there yet, but you can see he's starting to think along those lines. So the Kalamazoo speech shows a transition or is part of a transition uh, in his thinking on, on slavery and on the future of the Union. One question I have is, how did one become a political celebrity, a political up-and-coming individual in the pre-Civil War era? We didn't have, you know, the media, of course, was very different. And newspapers were very important, you know, to transmit messages, you know, and the fact that they would even print a whole speech. You know, what what paper does that today? I think zero. The, the printed media was very important. And the ability to write was very important because candidates often wrote, you know, wrote letters. The, the, the speeches tended to be much longer and more detailed. And they were somewhat the entertainment of the day. You know, think we didn't have mass media, the sporting events. So these things were also fun things to go to, to go to a political rally and, you know, to see all the, all the people. There was a big event. So to answer your question, I think the, the political class, they were in a way celebrities without having gotten there through some other path. But by being a candidate in speaking and being eloquent and being able to articulate your point or to write, those were sufficient qualifications to make you a good candidate. Tom, why do you think that Abraham Lincoln never did come to Michigan when he was running for president or was president? Right. So it's interesting. You might ask, too, how do we know he didn't, you know, come to how do you know this is the only time he came? So Lincoln has been heavily studied. All of his writings that had been found up until the 1950s were published in a 10 volume set called The Collected Works of Lincoln. So it's kind of the, you know, the Bible of Lincoln studies. Of course, other things have been found since then. 
but also the Abraham Lincoln Association in Springfield has compiled what's called the Lincoln Log or Lincoln Day by Day. So we have the collected works, all his writing, and the Lincoln Log is a calendar of his life showing all his known locations based on his writings or based on you know observations or other things. So you can look, you can look at a date in the calendar and it'll say, you know, where he was and you know, he was in court that day and he filed these papers or whatever. So if you go through, you know, the Lincoln log day by day, you'll only see the one trip to Michigan. Now, he did remember serve a term in Congress. And so he did travel to Washington, D.C. and back. He also visited Niagara Falls with Mrs. Lincoln once. And uh, at least on one of those trips, he took a Great Lakes steamer from Buffalo. And some have argued that he may have passed through Michigan waters, <laughs> you know, on his on his sailing trip. But there's no evidence that he was ever on land, you know, any other time in Michigan. So your question is like, why why didn't he? So it, interesting at the rally in Kalamazoo. Remember, I said Zachariah Chandler was there. He would be a, a U.S. senator. So in 1860, Four years later, Lincoln is the presidential candidate in August 1860, four years later. Zachariah Chandler is Michigan's U.S. Senator, and Chandler wrote to Lincoln, and he said, you should come to Michigan and be my guest at the Michigan State Fair. This was 1860, and this will be good for your campaign. I'll introduce you to the important people and such. So that library, the letters to Lincoln, are in the Library of Congress. Many of them were, you know, the ones that were kept by his family were donated to the Library of Congress. So you can go online and you can see Chandler's letter to Lincoln. And then you can look in the collected works and you can see Lincoln's response. And he says, thanks for the invitation to come to Michigan. And he says, by the way, I remember meeting you in Kalamazoo, but my advisors are telling me I shouldn't be traveling about the country, that I should stay home. So I'm sorry, I'm turning down your invitation. So during the campaign of 1860, he didn't travel. People didn't travel as much then. And if you look at the Lincoln Log for the year 1855, the year before he came to Kalamazoo, he only left Illinois once. And if you look in 1857, he only left once. And one of those trips was to Cincinnati. He was involved in a legal case where he was you know, a lawyer hired to go. It was unusual that he would leave Illinois. But he had a legal case in Cincinnati and the other was the trip to Niagara Falls with Mrs. Lincoln. So he traveled extensively within Illinois when he was a lawyer on the circuit court, the traveling court that went from county to county. But really, he rarely left Illinois during Were they worried adulthood. about his safety, you think? Was, was it a safety issue or was there just, just no upside to it? It's too, it's, it, it's too much. It's a, it's a lot of work. There, there, there's little upside to it. But by the way, the trip to Kalamazoo took three or four days because he left Springfield, went to Chicago the night before, stayed overnight, took the train to Kalamazoo the, the, the next morning, gave the speech in Kalamazoo that day, stayed overnight in Kalamazoo, then took the train back to Chicago and then back to Springfield. So it's a three, maybe a four day trip. So it's a lot of, you know, it's hard, a lot of work. And, you know, then he's a busy lawyer. Like, why did he take four days off to, to come to Kalamazoo? You know, and by the way, this raises another interesting question. During the same period when he came to Kalamazoo, he turned down invitations to speak at Fremont rallies in Iowa and Indiana. And they were closer to home. And he said to the governor in Iowa, I'm too busy to come. And then, though, 
He comes to Kalamazoo. So that's that's somewhat of a mystery. You know, why would he come here for which we have we have resolved with our studies here in Kalamazoo? Well, one thing that I also find fascinating is that while Lincoln has records show that he only went to Michigan once, he's also one of the earliest people to say Michigander on record, correct? Right. So so, yeah, so this is another interesting little twist here. But when Lincoln served in Congress, his one term in the 1840s, Lewis Cass was then our U.S. senator. He's a very important person in Michigan history. He was running for president. Lewis Cass was running for president. And Lincoln gave a speech and he referenced Cass and he called him that great Michigander. So that's printed in the congressional record. And for many years, that was thought to be the earliest printed use of the term Michigander. And and people said, oh, Lincoln coined that phrase. Well, it has subsequently been found in earlier newspaper articles. But, you know, Lincoln was one of the early users of the phrase Michigander. And even there today, there's a debate, you know, are we Michiganians or are are we Michiganders? And I guess both both are okay, but I, I, I prefer Michigander. Kyle, what is the MERS rule for using Michigander versus Michiganian? I don't think we've ever used Michiganian. (laughs) <laughs> I think I would change it because I don't think it's I think it's Michigander. So that that is the MERS style, Sam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Breaking yeah, we, news. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, some some papers, uh, the, the Detroit papers do have uh, rules for, for their use. Now, Tom, it's time for the final question that I warned you about when we were scheduling this interview. Uh, what political party do you think Abraham Lincoln would belong to if he was around in 2024? I think he'd be a Republican, but he'd be a, a moderate Republican. He wouldn't be a, a Tea Party Republican or a MAGA Republican. So when you think about the current people in the Michigan Republican community, who do you think Abraham Lincoln would be hanging out with? I don't think I'm going to answer that one. But I do have I do have another observation I'm going to throw out there that, that connects his times to ours. You know, in the U.S. House, we saw this disputed election of the speaker right, that took many votes to elect a speaker. And in Lincoln's time, actually the year that he came to Kalamazoo, 1856, it took 134 votes for Congress to elect a speaker, 134 votes in two months. And it was very dysfunctional. Congress adjourned and then President Pierce called them back into emergency session to deal with the budget. So what I'm saying is, you know, we are in interesting times and they are sometimes turbulent, but the country has been through turbulent and interesting times before, and the system has functioned. Thank you so much, Tom. Everybody, that is Tom George, a former Michigan legislator and now a Abraham Lincoln history enthusiast. Is that a good title for you? That's a, that's a fair statement. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Kyle. Joining us now for the MERS Monday podcast is Senior Chief Deputy Director Jonathan Smith for Michigan's Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity, or LEO. 
There are obviously a lot of different things that the Department of Leo oversees, ranging from housing development to workforce and economic development. Uh, specifically, Jonathan is joining us to discuss the latest task in front of the department, uh, which is to oversee a new community and worker economic transition office to assist workers and employers with entering what is described as a clean energy economy. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You know, I before we kind of dive into this new transitional office, I know that we were also talking before we hit record here how Leo is a pretty substantially sized department. There's a lot of different areas that you're looking at. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what are the top subjects that you are diving most deeply into? Sure, happy to. So my role here at Leo is I'm the Cedar Chief Deputy Director and uh, what that means is, you know, I spend a lot of time focused on issues across the department, particularly issues where uh, we're trying to implement some policy innovations or enhancements to improve upon an existing program and just really try to make sure that every part of the department is operating as, as efficiently as possible so that we can serve the people of Michigan and, and serve the folks who need who, who need to access our services for help. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it is a large department, but we have lots and lots of great staff and, and wonderful folks who lead many of the, the 17 offices and bureaus that, that make make up the department and feel really fortunate to get to work closely with them uh, to help them, you know, accomplish their mission. Let's just start diving into, uh, you know, what the heck this office is. Sure. It was designed in Democrats 100 percent clean energy by 2040 package that was approved last year, last fall. And ultimately, this legislation, this aspect of the package was intended to assist residents who lose their jobs in the fossil fuel industry due to energy transitions. Uh, support services that this office could offer uh, could range from supplemental income and health care assistance to educational opportunities for workers to enter new industries. Now, my question for you, Jonathan, is that when you think about the incoming community and worker economic transition in office for preparing Michigan's workforce for a, a clean energy future, uh, what are you already seeing as some of the biggest obstacles for workers as energy inventories are already beginning to change? Yeah, that's a really great question. And you're absolutely right to point out that, you know, we have th this transition to clean energy, it, we're already well underway, right? Our our auto sector is already uh, beginning to make big investments in batteries and electric vehicles. And in the utility sector, we're seeing our, the largest utilities and, and even you know, small utilities around the state already making big investments in things like solar and wind and increased distribution and you know, energy storage capacity. So uh, these are changes that are already underway. And of course, these are global trends, right? I mean, this is happening all over the world. And in Michigan, uh, thanks to this this new uh, energy law, which which was passed by the legislature, signed by the governor, you know, really has an opportunity to have this timeline help drive a strategy so that we can really benefit from these changes in, in renewable energy technologies. From a workforce perspective, there's a, a lot of ways this is going to impact folks. And, you know, in our auto sector, uh, we know that that uh, we have a great manufacturing workforce. We have you know, tens of thousands of people all over the state working in production jobs to help you know make automotive parts and components and to assemble vehicles. And many of those, as uh, they go to work in some of these new investments that we've seen announced, uh, both from our large automakers and from the, the key suppliers, they're making these investments so that they can convert 
uh, you know, some of their production capacity from ICE to EV. And that is going to require some new skill sets for the workers. And, and so work that Leo has already done in this space includes creating what's called the EV Jobs Academy, which is a, 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 a program where we bring employers and training providers together uh, and make sure that we're producing a workforce that has the skills that employers tell us they need so that the workforce can come right out of a training program, go right to work in one of these, these new uh, factories and, and have the skills to, to be successful and to help the company be successful. So that reskilling component has definitely already been identified, something we're working on. You know, and as we identify other opportunities, hopefully to grow our economy around these investments in clean energy, whether that's through, you know, building out EV charging networks or building more solar and wind capacity, a lot of folks, a lot of new skills, uh, more electricians and more folks in the skilled trades and uh, more folks with high-tech manufacturing uh, skills and, and experience. And so helping make sure that our workforce system is set up to succeed, that our training providers have the right curriculum, uh, and that we're ultimately able to place folks into these jobs in the future. You know, that's a really critical role for the state. The office is going to hopefully play a really important uh, function in terms of making sure that as we're identifying uh, new opportunities and new challenges, that we're helping our workforce partners and we're helping other state agencies that have responsive programming, you know, we're helping them uh, meet the need that we've identified. I feel like this is a question that can get easily tossed into individual and potentially political philosophies. But I mean, what is the definition of clean energy here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the for the purposes of this legislation, we're really tasked with looking at new uh, clean energy technologies and the impact on the economy in, in two sectors. One is the utility sector and one is the auto sector. And so right now, really, you know, what we're, the goal here, right, is to take carbon out of out of, out of, the, out of the, the process, right? So we want to have uh, transportation in, in, in mobility solutions, automotive solutions that, that are producing less emissions that are using less carbon and the same on the energy side. And so the, the big investments that we're going to see in the future moving forward are going to be batteries are going to play a huge role, not just in electric vehicles, but in storing electricity as we build out renewable energy generation capacity and things like wind and solar. You know, we're going to need to store more of that electricity because if we're generating electricity when it's sunny or when it's windy, we're going to need to store it and so that it can be deployed uh, at times of peak usage. And so it's going to include everything from, yeah, the, 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 new, the renewable technologies uh, that are going to generate that clean, clean power, uh, but also a lot of the technologies that are going to store it and then move it around the state, right? And so that means building out more distribution capacity so that you can get this, this power around the state faster and more efficiently. And really going to involve, I think, hopefully a lot of knowledge economy jobs, particularly on the software side, as we have to develop really uh, critical software systems to keep the grid safe and to utilize new tools like AI to move that energy around efficiently. So there'll be, I think, a lot of job growth opportunity in this sector, both in the tech, that, that sort of hard technology side in terms of the equipment that's going to need to be deployed, but then on the knowledge economy side and how to deploy it and how to make sure you have the software systems in place to, to govern it. I know that. A part of the conversation, though, especially during the 2023 UAW strike, was how some of these new technologies, EVs in particular, just require less labor and that concern around that. Uh, how are you planning on address the potential issue of while these new industries might blossom, they also might not require the same number of jobs? You know, how do you make sure everyone gets a job in this? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, you know, folks have started to point out the fact that you know, there may be fewer workers involved in high-tech manufacturing. And again, that's not a new story, right? We've seen increases in automation that have happened in the manufacturing process over the last 30 or 40 years. And so we're really used to seeing this happen in the state of Michigan. And the good news is that can lead to increased productivity. And in the case of increased productivity, that often means higher wages for these workers as the manufacturing process, you know, because it involves these new skills around robotics, those skills are uh, rewarded with higher wages. And so this, this, the idea of you know, fewer people doing more complicated tasks and then earning more money, that, that can be a really good news story for Michigan. Now, obviously, you know, we need to make sure that is, to the greatest extent possible, we're, we're finding opportunities for everybody to, to, to have a, a job and a good quality job in this new future. And one of the, I think, really important things to keep in mind is these transitions are not happening overnight. These transitions are happening over years and decades. And so if you look at the timelines that the automakers have set out or the utilities have set out, you know, what we're really talking about is you know, transitioning to 50 or 100% of our fleet from ICE to EV in 2030, 2035, 2040 timelines. You know, the same with the, the clean energy standard going into effect you know, in 2040. So we have many, many years to prepare. And what that means is we can prepare that workforce for the future jobs through retraining. Um, we can work with their employers to make sure that they're finding diversification opportunities. While there may be fewer jobs in producing a particular vehicle in the future, there are going to be a lot of jobs producing the EV chargers that are going to power those vehicles. There's going to be jobs creating some of this new energy equipment that's going to be needed to power the, the clean energy grid that's going to that's going to charge those vehicles. So um, the World Resource Institute actually did a study about Michigan. And in their study, they looked at it and said, we could actually create 40,000 new jobs in Michigan because of these transitions, uh, just in nice to EV. That doesn't even include you know, the transitions in the utility sector and the energy sector. So while the concerns about displacement are super real and we want to make sure we're, we're paying really careful attention to that, we do have this opportunity not just to sort of you know manage uh, some of the downside of potential transition, but to really use the time we have to prepare for it, to build out strategies so that employers, communities, and workers all really benefit. And I apologize to try getting you to place a bet on a future date. Uh, but uh, but I mean, when you think about at what point will this office have to start directly providing something such as some supplemental income assistance, some benefits assistance, because a plant of sorts just shut down because of the energy transition. Um, at what point do you think that's going to come when those direct cash benefits are going to need to start being deployed? Do you think it's in three years from now, 10 years from now? What is your anticipated timeline? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, on the utility side, the good news here is that, you know, our utilities have done an amazing job when you know, they've been decommissioning plants uh, in the past. And if you go and you, you look at the work they've done when that happens, you know, they are often have a really great community uh, program where they can go in and they can help identify the folks who are ready to retire. And for the folks who aren't, you know, they're able to work with them to find them another opportunity within within the utility. Uh, they have a strong relationship, you know, oftentimes with their workforce. So, um, you know, those sort of known and planned closures oftentimes are, are really great examples of how, you know, the corporation and the community uh, and the workforce can come together and, and get a good outcome for everybody who's impacted. Definitely in the auto sector in the past, when we've seen closures, you know, they, they can be uh, less 
planned and less known in advance. And, you know, you think about the Great Recession, right, where we had a really uh, challenging economic period for the auto industry. And when there were plant closures, it was also often as a result of a business that had fallen on hard times and that, you know, no longer could could keep that, that plant in operation. And so those were you know, m- much more chaotic and challenging kind of plant closures to contend with. As we think about, again, this ICE to EV conversion in the auto sector, where we know coming out of, you know, the, 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 some of the announcements that the big three have made around their uh, investments for the future, both, you know, they're continuing to make investments in ICE production, right? We, we make a lot of vehicles in Michigan that are ICE vehicles that are very popular, they're high volume pickup trucks and SUVs and the powertrain that goes in them, those are going to be sold for a long time, right? As we think about a transition to 100% EV that is going to take a decade or more to, to play out, we're going to continue to sell a lot of those high volume popular vehicles that are made right here in Michigan for a long time. The, certainly, there is a possibility that you know we may have a plant closure in the auto sector at some point in the next few years. You know that that could be ICE to EV related, but it could be other trends that we've seen impacting that industry for years as well, right? Like automation and global competition, and you know supply chains moving south. And so the office wants to be prepared to make sure that we are able to come into that community and help if the, in the event that happens. But if you're asking me when I think the real ICE to EV impact will happen in Michigan, I think we have years to prepare for it uh, before we really start to see the product that's made here in Michigan uh, start to get phased out because of that transition. Now that's so interesting. I'm going to transition to some other subject areas. Uh, specifically, again, like we just said, Leo has obviously become a substantial department overlooking varying programs and subject areas. When you think about the governor's budget proposal, uh, shifting things like Michigan Reconnect and the 60 by 30 program to her new MyLeap department, uh, are Leo executives, are you all kind of thankful for this suggested change to have some of its responsibilities and focus areas scaled back? Like, okay, a little bit less of an overhaul of all these things we need to watch. At Leo, we're really proud of the work that uh, we did to stand up the Office of 60 by 30 and and to launch the Reconnect program. Makes a lot of sense for the governor to uh, try to align more of that education and post-secondary work around the state into a single department. So totally appreciate that that was a a really smart way to to combine things. But the work we did, we really cared about, we're really passionate about. So uh, I wouldn't say we're happy, you know, to to, to lose a, a program because we really enjoyed working on it. But it makes a lot of sense to combine it into this new department. And we have a a lot of strong relationships with, you know, that department, obviously the key staff at the office of 60 by 30, they're running the key program are still there and and are are still close colleagues. And so we would probably say here at Leo, we feel a responsibility to make sure those programs are successful regardless of where they live. And so just because it's in another department doesn't mean that it's necessarily something we don't worry about. Like, our core mission is making sure that the state has the workforce it needs to meet you know, all the challenges of the economic future and all the opportunities of the economic future. And so we have to make sure that you know, we're doing whatever we can to, to support the Office of 60 by 30, to support MyLeap, and, and to make sure that these programs are fully utilized in powerful ways to increase skills and credentials in Michigan, because the, the responsibility to, to, to grow our state's workforce and to make sure that we have the right educational attainment and skills attainment uh, goals, you know, that crosses across every department. So how we organize the work is important. And at the end of the day, what's most important is that we're successful. No, but will this might give some Leo executives another hour of sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> There's a really strong team at 60 by 30. And, and you know, those folks, they're doing great work, whether they're at Leo or by leap. And so is it one less thing on our to do list each day, maybe? Um, 
But, you know, the reality is that such a strong team and, and the folks who run that program are so capable that it, it was certainly no burden for that to be part of Leo. And it'll be, you know, obviously exciting to see them be successful at Miley, but we'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll be rooting for their success regardless. So I have two more questions for you, Jonathan. But I mean, when you think about the workers, rather it be through the perspective of this energy transition office, rather it just be Leo overall. I mean, what industries do you think present day Michiganders are really excited about right now? Which ones do you think have the highest level of interest? The great news is I don't actually have to know the exact answer to that question. We have great partners at the Michigan Center for Data and Analytics that produce some really great reports around um, where the most job growth will be in the state. And I think, you know, a lot of young folks, you know, where they want to go is, you know, where what jobs are going to support good wages and what where is there going to be a lot of opportunity. And so we continue to see, you know, a lot of opportunity here in the state of Michigan in a variety of sectors. One of the things, though, I'll just say to bring it back to the, the transition office that I think is really exciting, you know, as we think out about building out a new energy economy, and most young people that I talk to, you know, they're really concerned about climate change. They're really concerned about the world that they're inheriting from previous generations. And I think, you know, if we're able to position Michigan as not just the place where you can come and get a great job, you know, working in the auto industry or some of our other industries, but really position Michigan as a place where you can come and you can build a great career, whether it's, you know, in manufacturing or in the knowledge economy, producing the current and the next generation of technologies that are going to help us transition to, to clean and renewable energy uh, and ultimately help us solve global climate change. I think that that is going to be a really exciting opportunity for young people from all over the country and a reason why, you know, if we can be successful in building out the energy economy, take advantage of all the opportunities that are coming, I think that ultimately is going to help us attract more people to the state and, and help accomplish some of those population growth goals. Now, my final question is obviously... Michigan has a different business climate currently, especially with the approval of the prevailing wage legislation, the restoration of that, uh, requiring contractors and subcontractors for state projects to pay their laborers prevailing wages and fringe benefits. And now Leo in this legislation that has now become effective is responsible for assessing a business for a civil penalty of up to $5,000 for each violation. Uh, when you think about this current climate that we're in, in terms of businesses and prevailing wage and state contractors, uh, what's it like for Leo to start taking a its own transition into being more of a enforcer of this? Sure. You know, as the state's labor department, um, we have uh, the responsibility to enforce a lot of the state's uh, labor laws, whether that's work, workplace safety or wage and hour. And what I can say with a lot of confidence is that the approach that the professionals here at Leo take when it comes to managing those responsibilities is to really focus first on education and compliance. You know, I think from the perspective of Leo as a state department, we're at a point where we're um, we're issuing a penalty. It's because all of the other steps that we've tried to take with that employer uh, to educate them about what the law requires, to help them understand how they can take action to, to put themselves in compliance with it. You know, we, we make a lot of effort to, to try to make sure that folks have all of those opportunities to get into compliance before a penalty is issued. And so, you know, it is not uh, the intention of Leo to take a, 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 an enforcement first approach. We really, really, really want to be focused on education and compliance so that we never have an enforcement action. Obviously, you know, in some instances that will be necessary, but it's really not not the goal. And when it comes to these new wage laws, you know, that that's certainly going to be the case. Now, I think most employers uh, are, you know, doing the right thing. And Oftentimes, they have a lot of reason to want to pay higher wages anyway. We have a very tight labor market. And so whether 
comes to attracting and retaining a talented workforce, most employers are going to find they're already, uh, you know, have a lot of reason to, to pay great wages. We think that through, you know, bringing the, the labor market data that we have around what average wages in the sector are, help educate employers around how, you know, those increases in wages could actually help them attract and retain that workforce uh, and make sure they really understand what the law requires and what their responsibilities are. Again, yeah, I think that approach will help everybody, right? Helps workers make sure that they're getting higher wages and, and you know, they have more money to spend here supporting the state's economy. Uh, and it helps employers make sure that they're able to be in compliance uh, and, and that they're able to attract and retain the right workforce uh, that they need. So uh, hopefully that approach will continue to be the case here at Leo. I know that's going to be our, our intent and, uh, you know, work with everybody to, to make sure that we're, we're implementing these in the right way. Now, everybody, that is Jonathan Smith, the Senior Deputy Director at the Michigan's Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. Uh, thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking the time to join us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you for having me. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. This episode is coming out the day before my birthday. And I really want to share one of my favorite birthday traditions, which is being together with a group of friends and asking them questions in my full journalism glory. I ask about things that make them the most happy and the most challenging aspirations. I love asking questions and I am so grateful, so tremendously grateful to be able to ask even more on this podcast and as a reporter at MERS News. Uh, now it's time to thank our guests and express my tremendous gratitude gratitude. Uh, thank you, former Wisconsin U.S. House member Scott Klug of the Lost in the Middle America's Political Orphan Storytelling Podcast Series, former state senator and Historical Society of Michigan board member Tom George, and Jonathan Smith, the Senior Chief Deputy Director of the State's Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. I would like to express my gratitude for MERS editor Kyle Malin for helping me prepare today's episode. And as always, post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is provided by Jeff Smith today, who's affiliated with Mark Bayshore Audio and Okemos, which is responsible for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Shriver. Oh,